This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Headstuff Podcast Network. Welcome to Motherfucklore, podcast about words, Irish, Irish words, words from Ireland, and Christmas. I'm Derek O'Shea. I'm Geraldine McAvoy. And I'm Pedro Kravonik. And you're all very welcome to our, what has become a, a yearly event is now an annual tradition. It's our Christmas episode. I don't think we can take credit for having Christmas. <laughs> like everyone has Christmas every year. <laughs> we invented it. <laughs> right here. Cromwell tried to stop it. Yeah, the idea of people having people who do a thing having a special Christmas version of that thing is not unique to us. <laughs> it, it ruddy well is. Now that we're not allowed to swear anymore, it ruddy well is. I, neither Pather nor I got the memo as of last night when we recorded um, a very sweary episode, uh, which I hope you're looking forward to. Yeah. yeah. Is there no swearing on the Christmas episode? Meh. Meh. Because that sounds like bollocks. Okay. That's not in my contract, let me tell you. Very well. No, we are, we're looking forward to our, our first episode of 2021. We are going to revisit a topic. Something that we received the most feedback about is the, is the amount of... Geraldine's dirty mouth. <laughs> Turning the air blue. In, and we are going to actually talk about the politics of swearing and women swearing. And that's going to be our first episode of 2021. We're really excited to bring it to you. But until then, instead of turning the air blue, we're going to be turning the air um, red, holly well, green, um, yeah. Christmas colours, tinsel coloured. <laughs> we're going to be turning the air tinsely. Well, when I was looking into Christmas and, you know, we, we all like Christmas. I don't like Christmas quite as much as Garaging, but I might like Christmas more than Patter. Less than Lasarina, more than art. But <laughs> one of the things I was looking at that our friends, the Puritans, hated Christmas because they're no crack, hi. Yeah, they were. They were negative crack. They uh, were, imagine founding an entire religion based around being zero crack. I mean, there's a lot of it's, them. <laughs> but the one of the things is when. Um, when the night before Christmas was written, and this is something that I, I thought was very interesting, um, because Christmas was still controversial at the time Clement Moore was writing that the famous poem, which names the reindeer, he decided that because there was so much controversy about Christmas Day being an event, he set it on Christmas Eve. Ah. Which wasn't a contested holiday at the time. And this, this what was, this, uh, this allowed it to be published with less controversy and completely changed the narrative around how we consider Christmas. So if Santi shows up before midnight on Christmas Eve, um, then you're you're basically allowed to have Christmas because you can't do Christmas on Christmas Day, in essence. How Christmas was actually celebrated, Christmas Day was celebrated in the 17th and 18th centuries or when, when the Puritans tried to clamp down it. It included cross-dressing carol singers and poor people arriving at rich people's houses and demanding food. And money. Sounds like something I can get down with, to be honest with you. Yeah, I'm into that, yeah. But yeah, but the Puritans were very were particularly concerned about cross-dressing Christmas antics and the redistribution of wealth. They thought those two things were absolutely outrageous. So, yeah. So they, <laughs> so they packed up and went off to set up their own 
Fucking Islamic State on the east coast of the United States of America. Great bunch of lads. Great weird. bunch of lads. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> they an absolute shower of dry shites. I mean, they were just, they were just awful. Like, just this idea, like, no dancing. Could you imagine no dancing? I mean, yeah, foot, foot loose. That's no dancing. Yeah. And look how that turned out. You know, Kevin Bacon had a great time in the end, but like, no dancing. Mm. But it was tough to get there because of the Puritan John Lithgow. <laughs> yes, indeed. Foot, foot loose. The the idea is, I think, was, was there a town in Ireland tried to ban dancing? It was just the, the, I do remember one of the things, one of the complaints when, when at the, in the early days of the, of the free state, when the, the church wanted to clamp down dances, one of the objections that was raised was if you didn't give people the opportunity to just meet casually, they would own, they would just go straight to fields and skip the dance part and go straight to the end part of the date and make nice. it the whole evening. <laughs> I love the logic of that. It's like, we want, you know, a bit of foreplay beforehand, essentially. That's what you're allowing for. They, they if you, if you ban dancing, there will be nothing but shifting going on. Yeah, exactly. That's not what you want. I mean, that's that's said by a person who's never been to a dance, you know. I don't know. I mean, plenty of shifting going on. <laughs> Let me tell you. Not if you leave room for the Lord in between your two dancing bodies. You could manage. My, you could manage. <laughs> My mother's theory about the word shift was I, when I wrote an article about this, when Maura Higgins made it very popular, made the phrase very popular uh, beyond Maura Higgins shores. invented shifting in 2018. This is the thing. But the when my, my mom's theory is when, when there were dances in, in the 60s or so, uh, when a boy wanted to kiss a girl, he wanted to take her outside. They had to leave the dance hall. So you'd say, let's shift, meaning let's leave. Ah. That, was, that was my mother's theory anyway and that's as good as any theory around mm-hmm. the mysterious yeah. origins of that word mm-hmm. I think so it's it, it seems to be from my research the phrase seems to originate in Munster around the 60s uh, if not the late 50s but anyway so shifting shifting was invented in Munster in, yeah. yeah by my <laughs> mam by Derek's mam <laughs> Derek's mam at a dance <laughs> good god anyway the um so do we have plans for christmas guardian are you gonna have a, a traditional finished christmas this year um i'm having a little bit of both so we're doing a finished christmas on christmas eve because uh, their big day is christmas eve and then i'm doing christmas dinner uh myself um on christmas day and i'm actually really excited about it because my mom is i love her dearly she's a control freak so like do you know when you're like to your mom do you need any help and she's like no no i'm grand now and then just 10 minutes before dinner she's like not a year helping me <laughs> <That's my mom>. <laughs> <laughs> um so I'm, christmas yeah i do i work so hard and you do not and you're in there watching the telly anyway um so it's nice to have a little bit of creative control for the christmas so i made cranberry sauce today i'm gonna make the stuffing i think later on today and then um I have the ham defrosting in the fridge. I'm ready for it. I'm ready for this. Um, and it's only myself and my boyfriend. So if I fuck up, it's just me and it. <laughs> so um, the, the, the two years are going to have an entire turkey and an entire ham? No. So we have a bait. Well, it's it's like a two and a half kilo ham. It was the smallest ham I could get because here they have, um, like the ham is like a massive monstrosity. Like it's huge. Um, so I could get a small one for two and a half kilos. And then I have a chicken because I don't like turkey that much. And anyone who tells you they like turkey, what you like is the fact that turkey is a sponge and it soaks up all of the other good bits. That's what you enjoy turkey Mm. for because it's dry and rotten. So I'm having chicken. Um, I had um, excited. So only a couple of years ago, for the first time ever in my entire life, did I taste turkey that was properly cooked Mm. and was delicious and moist and very 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 nice and I like I have convinced myself that I don't like turkey and it's just I don't like turkey the way mortals cook it where it ends <laughs> up dry and awful but yeah I'm still I'm still eschewing the turkey this year we're gonna have yeah. lamb we're, oh. gonna, we're gonna slow cook a leg of lamb Fab. yeah are we, you having any ham with that now I, I'd be remiss oh, the there's, there'll be a ham a ham will be around but the ham never makes it to dinner oh Traditionally, in my family, the ham gets et in a in a drunken frenzy on Christmas Eve. So my friend told me that I was discussing with her about making the ham, and I was talking with the glaze and whatever, and she was like, "Yeah, I don't know how my mom does it. She, but like, they have it like after midnight mass, after a few scoops, um, yeah. they come home and they have their sandwiches then." And I was like, "That's genius! <laughs> like, you're not waiting till Christmas Day. You have yeah. them the night before in yeah a drunken stupor." Class. So my my grandmother invented a dish um, that has been passed down 
from generation to generation in my family. Um, and it's, it's, they're called, it's a funny name. They're called savory balls. Um, but it is mashed potato with very finely diced onion, oh. uh, rolled, rolled into balls, dipped in egg yolks and breadcrumbs, and then fried in the pan until it's crispy and golden oh. brown on the outside. So we eat those Jesus. with the ham on Christmas Eve. Tremor. And it's, oh, it's, it's the food of the gods. That sounds unreal. It's absolutely amazing. You're describing it like the, those old Dervla Kerwin M&S ads, you know. Yeah. This is not just balls, food. Dipped <laughs> in gravy. Oh, there's no gravy. No, 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 no. That, that would ruin it. That would take away mm. the crispiness. D- d- yeah, crisp. Mm. Those are the not, I love that. These, <laughs> these are not just balls. These are savoury balls. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. Like loads of pepper. And then, so, I mean, we overconsume those because we have them Christmas Eve um, with the... Uh, with the, the the ham that never survives into the next day. And then we have them with breakfast Christmas morning. Oh, yeah. And then we have the dinner. It's the only day of the year my family has their dinner in the middle of the day, like a big share of culchies. Because um, my parents are culchies. So that's... that's but they've, they've successfully the right they've way. Success, <laughs> they've successfully put on a dub camouflage and they normally have dinner at six o'clock. But like Christmas Day, back to their culchy roots and, and dinner in the middle of the day. And then later on that evening, we go back to the savoury balls and we have them with the cheese board. Um, I say cheese board, with all the little bits of cheese you get over Christmas. For some reason, Christmas seems to be a time where you accumulate cheese and crackers at a rate of nuts. And nobody has any idea where they came from. Yeah, I'm Mostly missing that this gifts. year. Yeah, I don't. The cheese here is to like in the cheddar you get in Finland. It's just not like it's like American cheese. I don't even have a flavor. They're big for Edam, which is just rubber. It's just daily <laughs> rubber. You know, it's not cheese. I I just there there there's want for cheese here. Uh, <laughs> my friend Jose, like a cheese. When my friend Jose came to Ireland for the first time, he was just blown away by how good the cheese was. Uh, he just, he just thought this this cheese is fantastic, and he brought back some cheddar to his family uh, in Spain and at said Castilla and they were like, "Oh, okay. and his grandma's like, oh no 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 no," and 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 she was just so offended by the sight of it. And then Jose says, "What's what's the problem here?" And then his mother said, "That's the cheese the Americans brought over after the war." <gasps> They, the Americans brought cheddar, I didn't, did I, they? And I was thinking, hang on, like Spain. Is that true? Fra- you know, when, like we all know that Americans beat fascism, but Franco was left alone. Like he was, he was, he was still did, there twenty odd years later. Did Jose's grandmother have a German accent? I never like, met her. <laughs> I never met her. Ach, Liebe. No, no, not at all. I was born here in uh, Madrid. Yeah. <laughs> no, I have no aliases. I was not. I was not doing anything between 1939 and 1945. Indeed. So, um. <laughs> oh, so, Christmas. Of, so, Jose's no, granny's a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> What's her name? Odessa. <laughs> Um, speaking of, of weird cheeses, I, w- I was given a gift one time by a group from Norway. I gave a presentation to a group from Norway and they gave me this traditional Norwegian cheese. It's a traditional Norwegian brown cheese. Ew. And it's a big block of cheese that's quite rubbery-ish in texture. And it's brown. So it literally sat in my fridge for months because the colour was unappetising. Yeah. And I had to, I had to, and they gave me the traditional little cheese shaver that they use in Norway to shave oh, it yeah, off. Oh yeah, Ustivel. Yeah, and they Norwegian normally. Norwegian invention. Yeah, they normally serve it on um, waffles. Um, but um, yeah, which, uh, I, cool, I, great, whatever, you do you, Norway. Uh, so this cheese was sitting in my fridge for ages and eventually I said, right, it's coming close to the best before date on it. You know, cheese lasts a good while, but it's coming close. I have to try it. And yeah, I overcame my prejudices and the, you know what? The brown cheese isn't bad. It toasts nicely. It's, it's, it's a weird sort of sweet and savory experience, but um, yeah, go on Norway. Yeah. He's, I'm just Googling peeps. it here. Apparently it's a brunost, which is a brown cheese. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great name. Uh, excellent name for mm-hmm. it. <laughs> Yeah. Fairness, I mean, like, yeah. It looks very brown. It yeah, does look it's very quite brown, brown. Like yeah. it's quite brown. brown. But um, yeah, I just had it on. I toasted it onto some Irish bread, and it was grand, lovely, like fine. Wouldn't wouldn't order another block, but brown cheese, <laughs> not as bad as it looks. That's really their slogan. <laughs> <laughs> Norway, we have the brown cheese. It's not as bad as it looks. <laughs> so, speaking of brown cheese, twenty twenty, what a year, huh? <laughs> 
No, no, no. We said the brown cheese wasn't bad. Yeah. <laughs> 2020 was yeah. quite definitely as bad as it looked. <laughs> yeah, 2020 was a bit of a stinker of a year. It was an odd year and it, I think it was a very horrible year for a lot of people, but also it was an odd year in that it was as a strange social experiment of how people react in, you know, when the, the when the, I guess the small comforts of, comp- of company of, of, of this, this small encounters you have, it's we, while people have made arrangements to see to communicate with their closest friends, we people have lost them from those the small social interactions you have, um, bumping into people in the street, buying things in a shop, talking to someone in in, in a queue, all, a huge part of this of of the fabric of normal of our engagement with society has been taken away, and it has affected people in lots of ways. It's stretched people very hard. Mm. Yeah, it's and it's going to hit home at Christmas time, really, in a big way. Um, and obviously, my heart goes out to anyone stuck off Farden who who can't make it home, Garadine, you poor poor dear. Um, and but I mean, like the biggest complaints I see are are people whinging that they might not get to go to the pub on Christmas Eve, and it's like, cop on, you know, let's just have one shit Christmas so that we can have a good one next year and hopefully you know there's a lovely saying at Christmas in Irish um means may we all remain alive until this time next year yep. and like that's that has never been more <laughs> yeah. appropriate like in, in the entire history of that phrase it's like someone whoever came up with that phrase for the first time probably came up with it like at a time when life expectancy was a lot lower and a lot more diseases were 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 fatal and it probably meant a lot at the time and then it lost all of its meaning along the way Kamerim with and Amsha Rish was just like yeah cool great Christmas looking forward to the next one but now it really means oh thank god there will be another one and we can just struggle through this one. We can just struggle through this. Just do without our pints. Do without our, you know, spitting on each other's faces or whatever people do for fun. All of the stuff we're not allowed to do anymore. Like, no singing. Absolutely no singing at Christmas. That's that's going to be very upsetting. Yes. Yeah. I think there's something nice in, not the not singing. I mean, that's no crack. But like, there's something nice in a sense that so a few Christmases ago, I spent my first Christmas away from home and it was very hard. I found it really tough, particularly considering they don't do anything here on Christmas Day. So like Christmas Day was like had Stevens's Day vibes and everyone was just like stuffed and chilling. And I was like, but everyone at home is having a fun time. So I struggled a little bit with that. So thankfully, I've been through it before once. And I think there's a little bit of solidarity in it this year that like. I know I'm not the only one having a weird, different Christmas. I know I'm not the only one who hasn't seen my grandmother in a year. I know I'm not the only one who hasn't seen my parents since, you know, however many months ago when I was very lucky to be able to go home for a little while. Um, and I, I know that, yeah, it's it's a tough Christmas, but I think there I'm finding a solidarity in I'm not the only one who's having a tough Christmas. And like you said, if we get through this one, hopefully the next Christmas will be, we'll have like a roaring 20s style Christmas. Do you know when they all went nuts after <laughs> the, uh, the the old Spanish <clears throat> flu? <laughs> we survived. Woohoo! That makes so much more sense now. I think because we never really talked about, I mean, when we talk, talked about the 20s before, our, our entire concept of the 1920s was revolved around this idea that people were partying too hard right before the Wall Street crash. We never saw it there partying hard after a pandemic. We never saw it that way. And our conception of that of that entire time was probably um, was was very unfair. We just we just saw them as 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 fools marching towards an economic crash. And when you actually look at graphs of the twentieth century economy, the the nineteen twenty nine crash is, is nothing compared to the ones in the eighties and in and even in, in the twenty first century. But I mean, compared to the actual uh, the levels of dips, just they were they didn't have the institutions in place to actually deal with them at the time. Yeah. Yeah, the wealth wasn't as constant or was was over concentrated. It wasn't as concentrated in in um, in big uh, corporates. So the likes of like one big bank collapses and all the other big banks are are relying on it and they fell down. But there wasn't as much wealth spread throughout the entire economy. And, you know, nobody, the phrase negative equity was not a thing in 1929. So it didn't, if you were rich enough to have a house, you were probably going to suffer the effects of the 1929 Wall Street crash. But that wasn't a lot of people, comparatively speaking. So it hit, it hit people who were borrowing to fund the expected lifestyle, which is 
basically anybody with a mortgage um, in 2008. So it was different. But you also have to add in to the, the, the Roaring Twenties vibe is that anybody, um, anybody old enough to be partying during the, the Roaring Twenties, like anyone who was older than a teenager, was in some way involved and definitely affected by the greatest industrialized slaughter that humanity had ever seen in the previous decade. Yeah. They're like, there had been no such thing as a world war before 1914. And especially when the Yanks joined in 1917. And then all of a sudden, literally every single person who's still alive after the Spanish flu and able to hold up a champagne glass or, or wear a tuxedo was in some way directly involved with the 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 slaughter of millions in World War One. So you're fucking right. Like, geez, we were so like that that kind of thing will never I mean, I hope it'll never happen again. But I mean, we'll never go through that where like, you know, one out of one out of five of your mates don't come back. Yeah. And you know, fucking right I'm drinking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna spend that exactly. entire decade I in have a, a paralytic right. mess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right to go full Great Gatsby on that. Like we're al- we survived. Like let's all go fucking nuts. Like definitely. Yeah. And it's I because when I saw Donna Tart doing a, a reading in Dunleary a couple of years back, and it was on the publication of the Goldfinch, and she was talking about how she had never let the um, never oh there was about to be a film movie with a secret history made, which is her kind of her classic uh, kind of college. Um, college murder novel and one of the things she said was that she that when, when a book is filmed it kind of it, it traps it in that in the period it's filmed and we you, we don't see the catch in the rye as a book about the 50s the way we see the great gatsby is very much a book about the 1920s mm. and we're we, because of that we're kind of um we we don't see that that, that, that is, we see the kind of great gatsby as an excess as well. the idea is there's an idea that C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, the idea that people in the past were dumber than you or worse than you, that like that decades are like um, houses on a street and the ones down there are where the, where the bad people live or the bad sort live and we're better than them. And that's this idea of, of um, whereas we think now possibly, hopefully with a bit of wisdom, a bit of art, we can actually see people in, in these times we thought, oh God, why was everyone, why was everyone so thick then? I mean, people will be thinking of us that way in <laughs> 50 years time. Yeah, could why you, didn't they just wear their masks? Yeah, I've, they were just told they were just told to stay out of the pubs, and they couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they couldn't do it. They had more technology um, in their pockets than the than than was in the the rockets that went to the moon fifty years earlier, and then yeah. they started using it to doubt if the moon existed at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh my god, I saw an amazing meme this morning. Somebody shared it. I think it was a TikTok video. But like uh like your mom 20 years ago was like, what are you using there? What's that? Microsoft Messenger, is it? Would you be careful with that now? You can't trust everybody on the internet. They might not be telling the truth and they might want to just lead you astray. So don't trust everything you see on the internet. And your mom now it's like, no, look, the vaccine's got a microchip. You know, my friend Karen shared this thing on Facebook and it's 100% true. So I've done the research. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it on Facebook. Barbara shared it. And sure, what would Barbara be doing but sharing fake news? I don't think so. <laughs> sure, Barbara has a son and accountant in London. <laughs> and he's flying home for... Now, he's not allowed to fly home for Christmas. So what he's doing is he's sneaking into Scotland and then he's going to go to... He's going to go to Belfast and then he's getting a lift down from a fella from Belfast as far... It's like, what? <laughs> I need to lie down. <laughs> I know we've made up this woman, but people are doing that. Stop it. <laughs> Dramatisation may not have happened. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's... It's very frustrating because the, the, this, this, I know it's not unique to Ireland, but the whole idea is let's have strict rules, but make exceptions for me is one of the kind of, um, is the great fallacy of, of conservatism in general. The idea that yes, strict rules are great for other people, but there's a little mm. loophole here. And the idea that, that people think, think that instead of maybe, instead of saying, let's have a, a, this good system, um, no, let, let's, have a, let's have a politician arrange this you know, medical card for me or this driving test kind of uh, skipping ahead of the queue for me instead of making fixing it so it works well for everyone. People don't want, you know, that the, the queue to work. 
Yeah, and a certain a certain type of politician doesn't want the queue to work either because then they have no largesse. Mm-hmm. Like if you made the passport system efficient or the driving license system efficient, and if you made now passport system, I got to be honest with you, I think it's efficient enough. It's expensive. It's a little pricey, but I think it's quite efficient. You you can get your passport in whatever it is ten days in an emergency. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. You just have to remember to make an appointment. Um, but anyway, all the other things that you mentioned there, those little things that a politician can give out of the goodness of their heart. Sure, why would they want to part with that power? Yeah, you know, that's how they get votes, particularly when you think about rural politicians. That is how they operate. Um, fairness. You know, uh, well, I don't like him now. You know, he did bankrupt the country, but didn't he fix that pothole? So <laughs> I'll, give him a, I'll give him a preference. All right. I yeah. might give him the number but, two. But look, like, I know. Stop! I know he was caught red handed with all that money there. But I mean, he got your brother the passport. It's like, no, he's a citizen. He's entitled to the passport. <laughs> I th- this, yeah. So we, you know. Dublin, Dublin politicians get a lot off the hook there. There's a lot of this. that this There's none of them from Dublin. That may have been a country accent, but he's in, he's in a lot Dublin of, South Central or Dublin North. Like, there's, there's plenty of pork barrel back scratching. Uh, my dad used to tell me that back in Kerry when he was when he was young, there was a, a fellow, I think, I can't remember the guy's exact name. I think it was Diddy O'Shaughnessy, but the, he used to cycle around the constituency and he saw a bunch of lads doing a bit of work. He'd say, here you go, lads, here's for a pint later. Where are you working this afternoon? And they'd say, oh, we're working outside McGallagher's farm. And then he'd cycle up to McGallagher's farm and say, Remember you told me about the, you were complaining to me about the pot. Well, I got those feckers in the council. They're coming this afternoon to fix it for you. Yeah, <laughs> I I heard um, I heard tell of a certain politician in a certain part of the country, who I will not name um, because you know <laughs> because I just shouldn't because I don't want the podcast to be sued off the air. Mm-hmm. But this certain politician would pay a bunch of lads to wear high vis with council worker emblazoned on the back. And just have them go out and look at the potholes in particular. Because even the act of someone who looks like they're from the council. Yeah. <laughs> they, that's them now, that's fixing them. the potholes. Well, they're out there, they're having a look at it. I'm sure they'll be back to fix it any day now. And fair play to, you know, that, that TD or that councillor for doing that. Derek, have you ever read uh, John B. Keane's Letters of an Irish Politician? I have, years ago. He, John yeah. B. Keane, amazing talent. When he did have comedy, you, you he did comedy. Have Mm-mm, no. You should. It's. I think it's the thing is like it was written. When was that written? The fifties, um, maybe the fifties, maybe the sixties. Anyway, think, yeah. it's written in such a way that the politician in in question is a veteran of the War of Independence, as most politicians at the time were. So the nineteen fifties and the nineteen sixties. But apart from that, nothing else has changed about Irish politics. <laughs> And it is absolutely brilliant. Oh, I enjoy that. I I love that spectacle of that, of the way that Irish politics operates. It's, I mean, terrible for democracy, but sublime, you know. 2020, among other things, it was a big year for the elections. We had, it it seems like, it seems like more than a year ago, we had a general election around this very year. And then we had a big magic wall election in the United States of America. Which, you know, did grip us for a couple of days was a, and, you know. Yeah, I think the general, the, the presidential election in the United States was the Tiger King of November. So everyone just stopped <laughs> thinking about, you know, we all just were glued to what's John King going to do with the magic wall? Oh, there was what was it called? A key election update? That's, oh, oh that's yes. like tattooed onto my brain, like Wolf Blitzer going, a key election update. <laughs> a <And> then, key <laughs> election. <laughs> it's the exact same thing I heard two hours ago, but I'm still invested. It's ga- it was gasoline. Everyone's man was like, oh, well, you know what John King just says? You didn't know who John King was two weeks ago. And now it's like John King. It's oh, John King, you know. It's, but nobody but, knew who John King was two weeks before the election. Nobody. But listen, not but even the CNN watchers. But like but, for a significant period of November, I was very invested in Erie, Pennsylvania a place I had never heard of ever before in my life and then suddenly I was like did you see what way like discussing with my boyfriend as though we'd been there or we were from there we're like did you see you know Erie Pennsylvania it's because the mail-in votes that are coming they're probably registered Democrats like why, what do I know about it <laughs> nothing <laughs> we have we like we, 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 we're, we're all we're all of the sort of the same class of Irish person that we we on occasion lightheartedly mock people who act overly American yeah. like would you go way out of that you big yank and then we're sitting there going oh that is so typical of Chattanooga County <laughs> honestly honestly <laughs> <laughs> 
after after all that the Democrats have done for them over the years, they decide to turn red in this of all elections. Typical Chattanooga County. Meanwhile, hey, hey, Dark, what's the difference between the European Parliament and the European Commission? <laughs> uh. <laughs> I know, because I, I mean, know. you know, which is facts, but no, it is. It was engaging. This, in fairness to the lads in CNN, uh, they put on a they put on a, a compelling show. Uh, but the I story want to, itself. I want, I want to see John King roped in as an election expert on RTE for the next election. I would love if I he did because I think it would be really very interesting. Want to see that. Yeah, and I'd love that. Do you know what? I'd say he'd enjoy it. He has the stamina, you know, because you need stamina for an Irish election. My boyfriend couldn't hack it because he's Finnish and they know who their new government is at 10 o'clock when the polls close. And I'm like, <laughs> I am from Leash Offaly. I am ready for two weeks at this. Okay, I, yeah. have, I have the stamina to stay going. <laughs> What could you imagine? Could you imagine like, and we just zoom in, we zoom in a little closer, a little closer, right down into Leash and a little bit closer down to Timahoe. And in this electoral district, you can see it's very traditionally heavily leaning Fianna Fáil. Be prepared for a change. There's a big swoop coming in. We'll move over, over to Stradbally. There's Stradbally. Like, I'd love yeah, it. and then I'd you zoom it. in further into Gary Glass and Timahoe, and that's yeah. on the board. And then Lugga Curran, you know, it could go either way. It's an expansive area. <laughs> <laughs> what? I would C- love C- to C- see him. Cuga Clorin is quite an expansive area. Gary <laughs> <laughs> counted very well on here in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be fantastic. Uh, so, but obviously, the, the election was a huge event, and I think, you know, I think. Fair to say, a lot of Irish people were, were reasonably pleased with the outcome. Uh, but perhaps one of the perhaps one of the, in terms of how this this event maybe one of the the one of the literary events of the year was how Joe Biden used a poem by Seamus Heaney in his campaign in a very significant way. And this is, I mean, probably possibly puts this extract from the Cura Troy into becoming one of the best known Irish poems in the world now. Yeah, arguably. but only that line. Well, he's the the, the the segment from humans being human beings suffer on the the larger play from which is taken and the, the context in which that that speech happens have are are not well known. But that extract is really well known. It's mm-hmm. like the taking the old world stage um, poem out of the con- out of the context of as you like it, and and removing the context from why why did the person say it, what what why, what just happened to make him re- to make these remarks. Um, pertinent and but like has anybody ever pointed out to um to joe biden or even to seamus heaney that that's not a rhyme it's it's an alliteration open history rhyme well duhas and dohas in ulster irish yeah yeah duhas and dohas uh, that that is look, i actually heard that on the radio um i was listening to um i was listening to fadas farshing Lisa Nick and Rev's show on Radio Nalifa and she had a guest on from Virginia and she made exactly that point. Like I was only joking about it being people mixing up alliteration and rhyme and I'm glad mm. to see nobody got it, so thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> but but you know, they don't rhyme hope and history don't rhyme in English, but Ducas Augustocus are close enough. They certainly would make for a poetic rhyme. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about it. If somebody yeah. threw that in as a rhyming couplet in a poem, I would not demand my money back. That is that that's that's close enough. Um and yeah, yeah. Here's hoping. Here's hoping. Because, look, God, I mean, Uncle Joe, like, you know, he's either from Louth or from Mayo, depending on who you're talking to. But uh, he. Uh, he I'll <laughs> let him be from Mayo. They need a win. Like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so Mayo for Sam was Mayo for Stott, ain't he Haverica? Yeah, that's yeah. what I thought ah, it was. Yeah, that's yeah. what Unc- it means. Mayo for Uncle Sam, as in, you know, the ah, depiction yeah, of America. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense now. Yeah, you're welcome. He has more of the, he has more of a kind of a mayo energy than I, he doesn't, he doesn't have that loud, he doesn't have a loudness to him at all. I mean, I think the onion version of Uncle Joe uh, probably was more of a loud person. (laughs) A draw (laughs) there. I'd never heard uh, Joe Biden start a speech with, well... <laughs> but I want him to. Can you imagine on his inaugural address, he's standing there on the steps of the White House, looking out at the Capitol on or wherever the hell they do it, and he's looking out in 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 DC, and he's he says, uh, "Well, shouldn't the guards are desperate, but the nurses are worse." <laughs> well, how's it going? <laughs> Pure town. Pure town. See you. I put I put you in a box. I box ahead of you. <laughs> 
Oh, what a year, guys. How has that been this year, though? How has that been literally a month ago? (laughs) I know, it feels bad. So what are our 2020 kind of uh, memories of, you know, this this podcast has become an official chronicler of Irish Twitter. And <laughs> we have in our holes, but go we on. Have. Let's see how this goes. <laughs> Maybe we didn't have. So, what, 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 what are what are your kind of Irish Twitter memories of twenty twenty? I think my one of my favorite things of of I think, but in a sense that like um you know it's been very hard to contact people on Twitter is how, how we've stayed in touch like um with people you know we don't have any co-workers anymore I see my boyfriend's face and my dog's face all of the time and like neither of them are on Twitter that much so you know um, they're not that exciting in that that respect but um I very much enjoy uh, a joke that goes on too long I I will bring that joke on too long. And um, Golfgate gave me like a big <laughs> hashtag Big Fail was my favorite thing all year. I was waiting for Big Fail. I don't care if that makes me sound like a begrudger. I don't care. If there was a pandemic and he went to a golf dinner. He got got what was coming to him. And I, it felt like being inside. And I think I've said this before: an episode of Reading in the Years from the eighties. Like when I watched that back, I'm like, Jesus, they were mad all together. And like yeah. it was like living through it. And it was like. While it was terrible, also very exciting. I listened to Joe Duffy, which is just that's the chronicler of of not Irish Twitter, but Irish um, parish notice boards, which Mm. I adore. Um, I listened to Joe Duffy several times over the the Golfgate Big Phil controversy. um, And I very much enjoyed all of the jokes about that um, because it was making light of quite a serious uh, situation which um, made it a little bit more bearable but nonetheless more serious um, so I enjoyed that very much I will take I will take full responsibility for being a big roger or whatever anyone wants to call me <laughs> I don't care okay I enjoyed it <laughs> it was such a highlight it made you listen to Liveline that's like on like for a full week I was like sorry now last that we have to listen to Liveline he knows who Joe Duffy is now <laughs> well he knew who Joe Duffy was after the whole um, normal people debacle could you, you know, good, good, after, good afternoon to you we got Lassa on the line there from <laughs> Finland and Lassa your, your girlfriend makes you listen to Joe Duffy every yes, day and you're livid it's a, it's a disgrace Joe it's like something you see in a porn <laughs> <laughs> What would you see in a porn, Mary? <laughs> well, I don't know what well, then. <laughs> like that was just <laughs> so funny. That was like something. It was just an incredible piece. Your man just was this un- unintentional comic character, and he was talking about the, the, the married women are ringing him in shock because normal people was on. It's like, it was like, why are they ringing you? Like, <laughs> Did he happen to be the uh, the local milkman? In a village with suspiciously hairy babies. <laughs> it certainly seemed that way. God, um, yeah, but that's, there was jo- there was normal people and the reaction to normal people. Uh, we we touched on normal people several times during the year uh, in between doing an episode on campus novels. And it, it turned up naturally in one of our most popular episodes, which is about Ireland and romantic comedies with Karen Seda from the AV Club. And in which normal people and people just immense so much to Irish audiences that these little compromises weren't that we were so used to seeing weren't made they, they weren't sidewalks he wasn't yeah. made he wasn't turned into a quarterback uh she wasn't made a cheerleader the any of those sorts of things and it was nice to have our own scene that way and hopefully it will allow more producers in the future to be brave enough to say yes let's 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 take irish sensibilities into account when setting things in ireland and yet <laughs> and yet later on this year we were um the, the the genius who brought us um, Congo and Joe versus the volcano uh, decided to turn his um, his American eye to a wild mountain, a herb oh of a one wild mountain. Did I? Yeah. And he'd be doing doing time for us. Where where where? You should do time for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, although that said, in all the fury about about Wild Mountain Time, there's one interview that sticks out. It was, they interviewed John Hamm, and they said, "Now John, John gets away. John gets away because he's playing an American, so he doesn't have to. He doesn't have a crappy accent in it. But he just said, like, loads of people are complaining about the, the you know, loads of people are complaining about the accents. So whoever was interviewing him said, like, what do you make of all the criticism of the way Ireland is depicted? He said, should the Irish love nothing more than complaining about how they're depicted in Hollywood? And I was like, yeah, we, but you can't, but yeah. 
I've never been so offended by something I completely agree with. <laughs> God damn you, John. Damn you. John, you got us right on the nose. God damn you. <laughs> you you yeah. like handsome, accurate bastard. <laughs> John has made, John Hamm has made uh, at least two films with Chris O'Dowd that I know of. And and so and I think he may have made, made films with another Irish actor as well. So it's it's quite possible that he's had these conversations with Irish with Irish people already, and is well acquainted, you know, for for the past ten years with how, with with how these other events have been seen, and and he probably has the conversations with other actors who've been roasted for having for doing. An Irish accent. How, but how dare he perceive us so well? How dare he perceive us with such accuracy? <laughs> and this is like, and this is the, the, the thing is, then you probably find that there's a lot of Americans, uh, American actors who particularly think he's from Missouri and he probably uh, sees, I think John Hamm is from, is from the Deep South and he probably sees actors doing Southern accents all the time and uh, do declare. I mean, he's, he's, he's from St. Louis. Like, it's not, Okay. He's not from he's not from rural Alabama like. <laughs> but it was in in the when we were when in the in the broader context of discussions of of actors doing accents I think it came up that Brad Pitt has played a Canadian more times than Ryan Reynolds has who is actually Canadian. Oh, yeah. And it's unusual enough that sometimes when these roles come up for for less for you know for international roles they don't always go to international actors even when international actors are well established in Hollywood they aren't necessarily like Ryan Reynolds wouldn't necessarily be the first choice for Canadian um, leading man roles when they do occur, which is very surprising. It's like that. We, uh, it's like that Simpsons episode. You know, you, cows don't look like cows on screen. Yeah. You got to paint horses. <laughs> Can, Canadians don't come across as Canadians, so you got to get you got to get somebody else in. Like that, Dan Aykroyd has played a Canadian though, uh, and played it well, and he's Canadian. Uh, um, I think. In Canadian Bacon, they had Canadian actors playing the Americans and American actors playing the Canadians. Oh, is that true? Oh, so John Candy was the Canadian, was he? I, I think John Candy is, is Canadian, but he is played an American in Canadian Bacon. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, the look. Canadian, yeah. yeah. Um, I, but I think we're very, it's very easy when you're discussing and critiquing Wild Mountain Time to get upset about the accents. But that's because you haven't, like, I'm not going to spoil it, but I recently had the plot spoiled on me and... I don't mind. I wasn't mad about it. But I went through, it's like the seven stages of grief or like the 12 step program, but it was something else. It was like uh, multiple steps. I was, it was spoiled on me like right before bed and I couldn't sleep for about till about two o'clock in the morning. And I kept saying to my boyfriend, who wrote it? Like who? And he was like, go fuck, go, go asleep. And I was like, I can't stop thinking about it. I couldn't get like for at least four days I went through like disbelief, humour, like anger, disappointment, it just was a, a multiple of questions I had about it. And I just, like the person who wrote that has an Oscar for Moonlight that, you know, Cher was in that. I don't understand. I'm, I, it's happening again. I'm getting pent up about it again. It's, you need to separate your, and I, I, w- I was on the phone to a friend and she had asked me what happened in it. And I was like, okay, I'll tell you. And she was getting angry about the accents. And I was like, no, you need to hold that anger. You're going to need it later. And then I told her what happened and she was like, what the fuck? And I was like, girl, I know. <laughs> so I think we need to, yes, critique the accents for being truly, truly terrible. But then also it's a bad film on top of that. Like, And like as Marion Keyes said in a tweet not long ago, because she like, watched it with her mom, she said it's not even that it's like funny bad, like Room or one of those films that's like so bad that it's funny. It's just bad, just bad, bad. The, the Room. The room. Not room. room. Oh yeah, room. Room, room, room is yeah, really good. Room is the really, really good one. Yeah. <laughs> the room is. You're tearing me apart, Lisa. I did not hit her. Hi, Mark. Oh, that one. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Hi, Mark. Oh, yeah. Oh, hi, Mark. <laughs> That's oh, uh, America's fatal deviation. Oh, yeah. My exactly. God. But, Amazing. The. But yeah, it, it does seem that there's two, there's two John Shanleys and, or in that there's the, there's the, the doubt and moonlighting or moonlight person. And then there's also the Congo Wild Mountain Time Joe versus the Volcano person. Is Congo bad? Oh, it's fucking shite. I haven't seen it. I've seen, I've seen Joe versus the Volcano and it's kind of like a harmless early 90s Tom Hanks comedy. It doesn't really, yeah, it's, it doesn't. It's a blip on the radar. Like it's not doesn't yeah. take a whole people and insult them to their very core. No, it does. Yeah, it, it does, does. a bit. Oh, like well, it does a bit. Then. Yeah, literally anyone from any part of Polynesia. But yes, um, but it turns out that it's not what you seem, and they're not as stupid as they're made out to be. But it, it's 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 um, 
that in itself it's, is a kind of a, a is, is yeah as a trope the oh the, oh they're kind of glick aren't they oh you know yeah but there's the but they they say with with congo i was it reminds me that they say you can tell a lot about a person uh from the first from what the what the first tim curry film they think of is uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, I thought so. I don't know what my first Tim Curry yeah. film I think of. But basically, yeah, because on one level, people, some people, there's people who say who'll say Annie or, or you know Muppet Treasure Island. There's other people who say Rocky Rocky Horror Picture Show, and and then there's uh, but anyway, what was interesting was though so, um, someone on Twitter once they said um, like maybe they thought they're being clever. So, I wonder if Tim Rice and Tim Curry have ever done anything together, and Tim Curry quote tweeted it with "Your mum." <laughs> oh my god that's james blunt levels of, of, yeah. of acerbic social media i just need to clarify something I, I i suspected this so i just googled it and checked there congo is a michael crichton novel the writer of jurassic park mm-hmm. so we cannot put the blame squarely at john patrick shanley's feet however he is entirely responsible for wild mountain time no, but mm-hmm. it's a play. Did he write the play? He wrote the play. He wrote oh. he wrote the play outside Mullingar on which this movie is based. Um and and yeah, so he's only partially responsible for unless and again, like I say, I haven't seen Congo, unless it's a good story poorly directed, he's but not to blame for it. There's there's a lot of bad films of good books, and we know that Michael Crichton is the was the genius behind Eeyore and Jurassic Park and and Westworld and things like that. So I mean, and and that he basically wrote he basically wrote like kind of over like two or three books a night when he was working as a, as a junior doctor to pay for his medical school fees. We're talking about a phenomenal genius, like that he actually could write for money while also working as a doctor, and was you know it was remarkably talented. Whereas you know. I mean, it's possible that if Congo wasn't wasn't great, and you were talking about someone who hadn't who knew how good entertainment worked, who knew how plots worked, but if Congo wasn't great, may have been someone else dropping the ball. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I mean, you'd like to think a good story gets 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 through, like you know. Don't I like, don't know though. Does it though? Because Wild Mountain Time got through, and I tell you, it's not a good story. You know, <laughs> I, it just made me wonder. I might get through like, to you. I mean, move you personally. It may have moved you in the direction of the bathroom, but yeah. Is that- <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, it's it's the type of I think it's is, the type of film that like a rural like I exist in a lot of like craft online crafting communities, and there's a lot of very well meaning, very nice everyone's mom on it from like a Midwest sort of like suburb who's like scrapbooking and quilting and enjoying that. That's It's her type of movie and she's allowed to enjoy it. But God, like the next time I meet an American, they better not mention it to me. Don't mention it to me because you're not, I'm not going to be responsible for the absolute overreaction that you get off me. Like if the same thing when somebody says to me, oh, you're from Ireland, isn't that part of the UK? Like they didn't need the reaction that they got off me. They didn't anticipate it. They were just making conversation. But I went full 1920s IRA on the <laughs> there's a way there's a way to get by if somebody starts associating Ireland with a particular movie that gives a negative portrayal of Ireland like they're, they're from they're from the US and they say oh my god you're from Ireland I love that movie Wild Mountain Time just go oh you're from America is it really like Deliverance <laughs> is it like is it all like Deliverance over there is it <laughs> Act as if that's the only movie you've ever yeah. seen set in the United States. So that gang's in New York. Do you still are you still at that? Still at it. Just that butcher Bill was fierce. <laughs> are you some pup? Uh-oh. Cutting the ears off each other. They were a devil. So he is. God, how do you get by with fellas like that? Huh? <laughs> Patter, what is your 2020 Irish Twitter highlight? Literally everything the TG Cahir Twitter account has done. <gasps> yes. Oh, I mean, yes. there's like, as someone who's been, I found myself working as a sort of a language rights advocate over the last couple of years, completely and totally accidentally. I like, I set up Pop Up Gwaltuk because I wanted to um, go for a pint w- with my friends once a month and have a reason to do it. Um, and I, I was a broadcaster at Radio Nalifa because I love broadcasting it just so happens that all these things were through irish but i ended up doing some things to try and promote the irish language and everything i've done and everything i've achieved in trying to promote the irish language pales in comparison to tg car sharing memes and shit posts on twitter it has done more to portray the irish language in a positive light than 
almost 140 years of revival. Yeah, that's all it took. Just one genius and a Twitter handle and a blue tick. And they said, <laughs> it's fine, Peg, I'll take it from here. Yeah. And they just <laughs> went for it. And if you're out there, it's Gigi Gahar intern. We love you. We'd love to have you on. We'll distort your voice. You know, we'll protect your identity. You can have one of those like backlighting that like, you know, when they yeah. have like people who are, yeah, their identities to be protected. <laughs> we'll distort your voice. We'll have you on. You can talk about your life. We'd love to hear it. Who, um, somebody at some stage just posted this tweet, just said like, TG Carr have got some intern. They just imagined some intern mm-hmm. in Hound in Galway, sending out these tweets. And I really, really hope that it's not, I really hope that this is someone who's really well rewarded by the best television station in the land for their time and their efforts. Uh, and if you're not, um, you should ask for a better contract. Well, I uh, hope it's somebody like, that we already know, like it's Michael D. Higgins or something, you know? <laughs> it's <laughs> somebody who's like, who's like OG TG Carr, serious business. Like, and they're like tweeting them out like <laughs> uh, well, I just could imagine Alva O'Monachan shit posting <laughs> just going into the bathroom for a minute to one and then just shit posting memes <laughs> this is um one of the things is this, this, earlier, I mean, a few months back, um, I went with TG Carr and announced it to uh, two new weather presenters, two, two young lads joining their team, and both of whom had established themselves in the station from working on, on their, so, their incredible social media team. And it, so it, it does seem whoever this TG Carr intern is, we will, bec- we will become, we, we may very well become very aware of them in the future because it does seem that the part of TG Carr's um, talent development is their social media team. Mm. Yeah, and and like let, let's let's be fair. DJ Car have always been ahead of the curve, and yeah. they've they've produced a pathway for people to go from, you know, things like Molescale and Block, this multimedia uh, broadcasting, to move into traditional broadcasting. Which is look at the moment, it's still seen as the pinnacle. Like getting yourself onto the telly is still seen mm. as as the pinnacle of that. But I mean, if anybody's going to shift that mold, it's going to be DJ Car with their. Uh, amazing approach to how we look at television and operating on the shoestring compared to the other other channels and yeah, yeah. Mullum Shiv, Moshiv, TG Car, Nullakuna TG Car, and and a less less son of Nullak to everyone else, but TG Car, <laughs> well, the, TG most, Car the most son of Nullaks. I'm sure it can also get because they're pretty good too. They're like oh, second the whole tier, lot. yeah, the whole the, gang, the whole yeah. gang. Whole but gang. specifically the I'm sure Twitter account and the TG Car oh, yeah. Twitter account. Those lads, mm. a great bunch oh. of lads. Ah, oh, top tier. Yeah, definitely. So, Derek, um, what was your Twitter moment of the year? Did you have one? I did. Uh, I, we had, obviously, we've mentioned before that certain stories from Irish history and mythology would make wonderful TV series or, and or films. And then uh, a few months back, uh, a writer in, in the United States thought that, you know, that the, did you know there was a pirate queen in Ireland and they, her name was Grainne or something, but I'm going to call her Grace in my script. And, and yep. oh, yes. It was it was it was one of these moments when everyone just you know kind of stood up and said no. <laughs> the it was it, it's Ireland's ability to kind of to 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 stand up for its culture is great. If only we could get that energy towards standing up for the Irish language, a big part. Of yeah, our and I think it's it, it refers to something that Pather and I have talked about before this year when we talked about like a, a peg and and our. Hot Goil Summer episode when we talked about Pather was mentioning about um you know how it's it's we don't want other people shitting on our culture or our language or our names but like we're sort of fine to do it ourselves a little bit which is unfortunate particularly with names and I I know yourselves as Irish name havers people like to anglicize them all the time and it's really frustrating we've done an episode very early on about this um and how that happens but yeah the context of that tweet was a, a screenwriter who was like had discovered Gorny Whale and she was talking about how this pirate queen was great. She spoke loads of languages, you know, she um, uh, captained her own ship and and whatever. And then her name was Grace O'Malley. And then somebody in the comments was like, well, actually, her name was Gronia. And then the response was, well, if I was if I'm writing it, which I am, uh, I'm going to call her Grace because it'll be for an English audience. And everyone was like, ah, no. <laughs> and yeah, got very animated about that, and she swiftly ignored it, which might might have been the best move for her. <laughs> yeah, um, not yeah. to antagonise, not to poke the, the Irish bear anymore. She, she look, she she didn't double down, so you can yeah. hope that. I, and like, to, and to be fair, a lot of the times we blunder into these cultural faux pas by, um, 
you know, not realizing the depth of feeling there is towards anglicization yeah. in certain circumstances, in certain circumstances. Like, you know, we're, we're fine to call it Dunleary, but, you know, don't call Grania Whale Grace O'Malley unless you're one of yeah. us. Exactly. Yeah. It's weird, but, you know, she didn't double down. That's fine. That's grand. Yeah. There's been a lot of doubling down on Twitter. It's been a bad year for doubling down. It has People been. who just do not realize that you've, you know, and like, I just want to say to everyone out there, it's okay to just stop tweeting. If, if you see, if you get a lot of people criticizing you for what you say, it's okay to just not, not, not tweet on the same subject for a minute and just see how it goes. It's okay to do that. You don't have to and, double down. And it's okay to actually, you know, to like leave Twitter entirely. And because it's, you know, it's, 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 it's your, you're the one who's living in your own head. You're the one who's living in your own skin. And if, yes, if, if, if things are that, just like, just get out of there. You're not going to, like, you're not going to, you're not going to find anything good. But I do think there's something to be said in that rather than just like kind of ignoring. I mean, I, I don't know what, what this person's reaction has been. And maybe they did take on board a lot of the comments they were getting, because while a lot of people were, were just being angry about it, there was there was a lot of nuance too, and I, I very see, I see that very often when people have like takes that might not take into consideration the realities of a minority or the historical nuances of what you're saying and why what you're saying is actually really offensive to a group of people or not necessarily offensive, but doesn't take into account the historical significance of what you've just said. And I've I've seen people actually read and engage with the criticisms and the constructive criticisms and learn from it. And that's really refreshing when people do that. But I think very often we don't see that. And when it, when it does happen, oh my God, it's like the most wholesome thing on Twitter. Like when people are like, actually, oh my gosh, I didn't know this. Sorry. And yeah. uh, I'll learn more essentially. And that's, and that can be really hard to do. I'm not saying that it's the easiest thing. It's not very, it's not easy to admit you're wrong, especially when a bunch of people are looking at you because people will already have criticisms. But I... When you do see it, it is wholesome. And I wish more people would at least, in, you know, take into context the criticisms from the community that is affected by what they're doing or saying. One of the unfortunate recurring events uh, this was online this year has been how any time maybe a, uh, just, a, just depending on the range of the offence, when a, a public figure has been challenged on, on their use of their platform, it's always been saying, oh, it's a pile on, oh, oh, oh Twitter overreacted to this thing. Whereas, and sometimes it's a case where alarmingly 60 people said, you know, um, I I've, we might say to someone, I've always enjoyed your work. Uh, you're, you're, you're inspirationalist. This is just, this, this, am I really surprised to see you coming out with, uh, with something that, that's as hurtful or as inconsiderate as this? Um, I like, I wonder if you have any more to say than that. And then when you see, I guess, that a level of, of engagement on that, and then, and then it was entirely dismissed or written about as being, oh, that's a pile on, what's this person was piled on because mm. they dared to have an opinion yeah. outside the range, and which well, is not the case. Let's, let's be fair, like, you know. Twitter has done one thing uh, and that has provided journalists with the easy option for a shite story. Twitter reacts to such and such as become yeah. the worst type of story, the worst type of... And like some of it is absolute nonsense because you could end up like if a journalist goes looking for a particular take, they'll find it. And they'll find it from these, you know, sock puppet accounts or new accounts with no followers, just people who are just on it to say this one thing. And all of a sudden it gets published in an article on the tabloids website or on BuzzFeed or one of those. And it gets a far bigger audience than it should have. And yes, it can look like a, it can look like a pylon then because this one imbecile with, um, with two followers has said, a nasty thing about someone who deserved some legitimate criticism but not a personalised attack mm. and then all of a sudden that's the narrative it's all a personalised attack now and then you're stuck in the position where but what I want to say to that person is I love your work but for God's sake you should be more sensitive about you know the the rights and the lives of, of people who have it worse than you and you're lumped in with the same person who sent death threats or threats of sexual violence mm -hmm. because of and it's because it just, everything gets amplified and, you know, it's, yeah, it's so tragic because it also, and I'm not saying anybody particularly wants to be doing this, but it also allows people to shirk legitimate criticism. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. like they can two lump things, that criticism in with the, with the, exactly. the, the nonsense. Two things can be bad at the same time. I think that's my mantra of 2020, which I think has been glossed <laughs> over very often. Like, it can be bad that, you know, 
that your take can be bad and the people telling you to go die can be bad. Like th- those two things can both be bad, maybe not at the same level, whatever. But you, just because somebody said something shitty to you doesn't make what you said, le- doesn't legitimize what you said. Like just just ma- a nuance, nuance, por favor. A little bit of nuance, please. Anybody for nuance? No? Okay. <laughs> if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that multiple things, multiple, multiple things can, can be, be bad. bad at the same time. Exactly. If Do you know what? Even, even smaller than that, let's go smaller than that. If Tiger King taught us anything, it's that multiple things can be <laughs> at the same time <laughs> exotic joe bad person carol baskin bad person tigers bad when they're in cages probably everyone who worked at joe zoo i mean bad at some bad level in some way yeah everybody in that show was bad it was just a cacophony of badness that didn't make any there was no hero in that show it was just a nonsense where everyone was like sort of bad yeah, and that is that a metaphor for life people I, I can think, be bad i think tiger king succeeded where game of thrones failed in just creating a story where there was no real good guy. There was no real hero just in the wild end. wild stories. <laughs> just what some madness going on. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was the greatest thing to have ever happened. I, I think that just is so... When we look back on the, the plague years, we can see, like, Tiger King was such an outlet. Like, like it seems like a fever dream now because it came yeah, along... Yeah, it was so long ago. I know, it came along in, like, March... And like I had heard about it and I was like to my boyfriend, I explained it to him what it was about. He was like, I don't think I'd be into that. And we watched one episode and then we were like, this is all we care about now. Mm, we need mm. to watch all of this. I care very deeply about what happened to Carol Baskin's husband. I need to know. It was just so encompassing and ridiculous. Like weirdest, weirdest thing ever. I can enjoy it, but I can also recognize that it's bad. A bad thing happened. Bad people did bad things. Uh, yes, and uh, speaking of carols, <laughs> it's Christmas. <laughs> it's the segue no one saw coming. <laughs> oh, that was your best work yet, Dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Way to end the year on a high. Speaking of carols, it's Christmas time. Uh, we, uh, we want to thank everyone who's listened to the show all year uh, and who's been who supported the show, the, the new listeners who joined us, the guests who've come along to contribute to our episodes and to share their knowledge and wisdom. Especially, I think, uh, my own episode highlight this year was our episode on Peg Sayers. Uh, we had um, um, the we had a montage at the end of Irish Woman talking about their own relationships with Peg. It was amazing, and it was particularly yeah. powerful. And the I want to thank all the all the women who contributed to that to that episode. I think it was a, it was a very special moment for me. It felt like it was it was the episode motherfucker I've been building up for since we started. I'm really proud of how that worked, and and yes, and everyone people who support us on Patreon for a little while who continue supporting us who. Joined us annually. Um, we are just so delighted that you've allowed us to continue to do this, to allow us to build our own mini studios, to make a show of a standard that's good enough for your headphones, good enough for your attention. Uh, something that we want to continue doing. Patrick and Gary, do you have episode highlights of your own from this year? Um, I think I, I would agree. The Peg episode was something that I was. We were so. Not that we were avoiding it, but we wanted to do justice to this issue and it was really important and I, I felt really good about it and the reaction was just so fantastic and um, I, I'm so grateful for all of the contributors. That was really, really, I felt like we did justice, that I the, the justice that I had wanted to do, I felt like we did it. So yeah, that was definitely my highlight for the year. Yeah, well, I mean, you two have picked that one. It's it's For me, it's the best one, absolutely. So I'm going to go with another one as my personal favourite. I loved talking to Caroline Cedar from the, the AV Club. I love talking about how we're perceived in the in the media. It's, it's refreshing on occasion to talk to someone who doesn't know much about Ireland to tell you the hard truth that nobody knows much about Ireland. <laughs> and, mm. you know, you're not that important, guys. So <laughs> they're not going to get everything right. But to do it with someone who's so knowledgeable about a particular topic that I don't have a lot about, uh, it, in this case, rom-coms, it's always great. I love when we get people on who are, you know, experts in the field. And we've we've had some great ones. Like Marty McEnumra talking about food. Um, when we had Lee Shukhan talking about, you know, uh, you creating the queer dictionary and bringing in new terms into the language. And I'm hoping for more of that in 2021 um, on occasion to get in somebody who really knows something about Ireland or Irishness or the Irish language. And I just... Let them at it, because that's good crack. <laughs> Let them in with, like, you know, useful idiots like me and Derek. Just <laughs> <laughs> tell us Pose more. a few questions. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great, and we are looking forward. We've got some pretty special episodes planned, and we are looking forward to bringing more 
words, Irish, Irish words and words from Ireland in 2021. And as we say goodbye and wish you a very happy Christmas, want to send us off on a sweet note, then this is Ihechim, sung by Eva Scott. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Sound too high. Me sound terrific all the way from the Finland.